Luke chapter 23 and verse 13. Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, said to them, You have brought this man, speaking of Jesus, to me, as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent back to him, for I sent you back to him. And indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for it is necessary for him to release one of them at the feast. And they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them. But they shouted, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Verse 22. Then he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has this man done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priest prevailed. Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. Verse 25. And he released to them the one who they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. Pilate had a choice to make. It was customary at the feast of Passover that he would release one prisoner back to the people. And if you watch in our scripture, you saw it. Pilate had a choice to make. And he was fighting his conscience. He was fighting what he knew was right. But because of the voice of the people cried loud and he feared a rebellion, Pilate delivered the Lord into the hands of the people. I don't have a title for you today, but I just want to preach about a great sacrifice that was made some 2,000 years ago this week. And we're going to celebrate a resurrection next Sunday. But we can't celebrate a resurrection without talking about a crucifixion. Amen. 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 Would you lift your hands all across this place one more time? Lord, I pray that you would let your spirit come down and meet with us for just the next few moments. Let our hearts and our minds be open to what you have for us. God, we thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice that you made at Calvary 2,000 years ago. We worship you, we love you, and we thank you for all that you've done and all that you will continue to do in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Turn to somebody and give them a high five and you may be seated. Amen. The word dichotomy can be defined as a division between two things that are or are represented as being opposed or entirely different. For example, Charles Dickens wrote famously in his novel, A Tale of Two Cities, saying it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, it was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness, it was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity, it was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. 
It was the season of hope. It was the winter of despair. Dickens perfectly encapsulate this idea of a dichotomy. Two things that are exactly opposite. And in our text today, we're introduced to another type of dichotomy. And that is Jesus and Barabbas. Good and evil, right and wrong, innocent and guilty. That's what we were introduced to today. And while I'm sure we're all familiar with the story of Jesus, or at least most of us are, I think it would be appropriate before we move any further to just review His story for a few moments. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, Mary. We find this in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, that says, But while He taught about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Him, talking about Joseph, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take you marry your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. From his conception, Mary knew that the child she carried in her womb would be the child that would save the world from their sins. And at the very end of her pregnancy, Caesar Augustus had called for a census, meaning that all people had to return to their hometown to be registered. And during that trip, Mary, great with child, super pregnant, like about to have the baby, goes into labor. And her husband, Joseph, a very soon-to-be new dad, so I'm sure he's nervous and excited and not sure what to expect, trying to do everything just right, does everything in his ability to get her a room so she doesn't have to have this baby on the side of the road. And they come to the inn, and the innkeeper said that, I'm sorry, we don't have any rooms for you, but the best I can do is you can go and stay in the stables. Uh, we've got a manger in there, and you can, you can deal with that. So there it was in the midst of animals in a cold, dark, wet stable that the king of the world was born that the king of kings was born into obscurity. The keeper of the inn had no clue who it was that was being birthed just a few yards behind his hotel, because if he had, he would have made room. But Jesus was sent to be born in a dark, stinky, dirty stable. The story goes on and we're introduced to three wise men who traveled from afar, with gifts for the newborn Savior. It's the classic Christmas story found in Luke chapter 2, 12 through 14. And this will be the sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a great multitude of the heavenly host, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest. On earth, peace, goodwill towards men. I'm not going to lie, I'm ready for Christmas. I know it's far away and we just had it, but I'm ready for it. After this, we really don't hear about Jesus until he's 12 years old. When he's 12, him and his family, they traveled to Jerusalem uh, for, for the Feast of Passover. And at some point on the return journey home, Mary and Joseph realized that Jesus is not with them. Actually, it's a day after they left that they realize Jesus isn't with them. And now that wouldn't have been very concerning 
because at that time it was common for children uh, to go and play with others, to be among other families because they all traveled together. However, this time was different because Jesus always came home, but Jesus didn't come home. And so they had traveled a day's journey. Jesus isn't there. And so they turn around and go back to Jerusalem to look for the Savior of the world who they just lost. How would you like to be that parent? Literally the hope of the world and you lost him. I don't think I'd want that to be me. But Jesus, in fact, was not lost. He was somewhere very important. When he was 12 years old, as I said, they journeyed to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. They left him. They go back to Jerusalem looking for their child, frantic. Is there any parents in here who your child has ever ran off in a store? And it's the most horrifying moment of your life. I don't have my own children, but I've babysat before. And when a baby runs off in Walmart and you don't know where they're at, it's horrifying. So I can't imagine the feeling that Mary and Joseph must have had. And they're running through the streets looking for Jesus, frantic to find their little boy who must be scared out of his mind. And there he is, sitting on the steps of the temple, surrounded by rabbis, priests, and teachers. And that little boy is not scared. Rather, he has captured the attention of holy men who have trained their entire life to know things. And he is revealing things about the Word of God that they had never known. That's where Jesus was. And Mary and Joseph come up to him and said, Jesus, where were you? You ran away. You weren't with us. And Jesus looked at them and said, I know I'm your earthly child, but don't forget who my heavenly Father is. I am here to be about my Father's business. And while they didn't know it at the time, Jesus had just introduced Himself to the men who 18 years later He would become at odds with. And the next time we see Jesus, He's 30 years old, ready to make His grand entrance on the stage of His public ministry. And while his followers would think him to be famous, to the Pharisees he was notorious. His message was sweeping far and wide across Israel and the world. But because of this, Jesus had a target on his back. One that the Pharisees hoped would soon result in the end of his life silencing this Jesus of Nazareth once and for all. And Jesus was not unaware of what was coming. He was completely and totally aware of the end that was coming to his life. He knew what was coming. He understood that his time on earth quickly was coming to an end. And so, towards the end of his life, he called a gathering of all his disciples. And he just wanted to have dinner. One more time. He said, come and have one last supper with me. In Matthew 26, verses 20-25, through we find this where it says, When evening had come, He sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, He said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray Me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to Him, Lord, is it I? He answered and said, He who dipped his hand with Me in the dish will betray Me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of Him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man had he not been born. Verse 25, Then Judas, who was betraying Him, not was going to, but was in the process 
of betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And Jesus looked at Judas, and he replied to him and said, You have said it. And Jesus stands up from the dinner table with 12 of his closest friends, one who betrayed him, yet he still loved him, and stands up from the dinner table and walks out. And we find him in the garden of Gethsemane. Cade, put that picture of that tree up for me. This picture right here was taken in 2016 when I was in Jerusalem. And this tree right here, you'll notice that there's a fence around it. That's because this is a very special tree. The tree is very important because historians have actually dated this tree to the time of when Jesus would have been in the garden. If that tree could talk, what would it tell us about that fateful night? If that tree could talk, what would it tell us about when Jesus stands in this garden with such weight and heaviness on His shoulders, crying out to the, for, to the Father saying, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What would this tree tell us about Peter and the sons of Zebedee who followed Jesus further into the garden? What would that tree tell us? It's important to understand the location of his prayer. He wasn't just praying in some random place. This is not just a random garden. This is a very significant garden. This garden was different. It had meaning. It is the Garden of Gethsemane, which is defined as a place of great pressure. It was an oil press. Put that next picture up for me. This is what olive oil used to be made from. They would take the olives and they would place it in that trough and that heavy stone there would be rolled on top of the olives, crushing them until every last ounce of oil was out of them. The process of making olive oil is a very intense process. It's heavy. It's hard. It's a process of crushing. The oils placed under the heavy wheel and crushed, like I said, until every last drop of the oil is extracted. So it's no coincidence that Jesus, in His last hours, found Himself in a place of crushing where every last ounce of oil in Him was being forced out. The weight of what was going to come had set in on Jesus in this place of crushing. The stress and the anxiety and the fear was so heavy and so immense that the capillaries that surrounded His sweat glands burst, causing Him to sweat blood. It is a condition called hematidrosis. It's incredibly rare. One study says it has only been noted in medical history 12 to 14 times in the existence of man. And it was there, in that place of pressure, in that place of travail and anguish, that Jesus would be betrayed by one of His own and taken into Roman custody. And we find Jesus now paraded out onto a stage in front of a large crowd. 
He stands before Pilate, the Roman leader in Jerusalem. And it was custom, as we read on a holy day, that Pilate would release one prisoner from death row. But Jesus was not the only man standing there that day. It's here in the story that we're introduced to a man by the name of Barabbas. We don't know much about him, except that he was a murderer and the leader of an insurrection and a rebel. Why he's even mentioned sometimes, I don't know. It's like this is a story about Jesus going to the cross. But Barabbas comes in and the narrative of what is simple, what is a simple choice between guilt and innocence becomes a story of unrelenting love of a personal Savior. It's in this moment that Pilate thinks, I hold the destinies of these two men in my hands. I know the Jews have their tradition that on this day I will release one back to them. And Pilate stands on this audacious stage who now presents Jesus, the Son of God, versus Barabbas, the thug and rebel. It was a clear choice. There was no question about it. There was no confusion. It should have been Barabbas who was sentenced to death and he deserved it and he knew it. And so did the people and so did the Pharisees and so did Jesus. It should have been Barabbas, but it wasn't. The cries of the people became so loud in the ears of Pilate that overriding his conscience and instinct delivered Jesus into their hands. Remember the word dichotomy? Two things that are exactly the opposite, that are exactly different. Jesus was a life giver. And Barabbas was a life taker. Jesus led peace. And Barabbas led insurrection. Jesus was innocent and Barabbas was guilty. Jesus was justified and Barabbas was condemned. Because that was Barabbas' cross. It was built for him. It was meant for him. It was made to see his end. But it was not Barabbas that was sentenced that day. It was an innocent man sentenced to death by quite possibly the most gruesome means of execution that mankind has ever dreamed of. He was mocked. He was spit on, laughed at, cursed, and humiliated. He was beaten and bloodied. He was taken and whipped with a cat of nine tails. And before studying for this message, I thought that I had an idea of what that looked like. But I really had no idea of what a cat of nine tails was until I saw one. You see, a cat of nine tails is a 18-inch wooden handle and attached are nine strands of leather some historians say, that were 36 inches long. Intertwined into this leather, leather is bone and pottery and glass and metal. And at the very end of each strand was a metal weight, a lot like what you use when you're fishing. And the job of that weight was that when the skilled executioners, which were the Roman legionnaires, when they would flick their wrists, the weight would sink into the skin, causing shards of material to grab on and lacerate the flesh. And 39 times, Jesus would be struck across His back with that whip, 
The shards of broken pottery that had been intertwined with, with the leather would leave the skeletal muscle hanging from his body looking like ribbons. And Roman centurions would mock him. They'd mock this bloodied and bruised Jesus by placing a purple robe on him, calling him king of the Jews, fashioning a crown made of thorn and placing it on his head. And what's interesting is never once in the middle of this horrifying graphic story, never once do we find Barabbas thanking Jesus for saving his life. Never once do we find him declaring his faith in Jesus and becoming a follower of the way. Not one time does Barabbas turn back to Jesus with a sincere look that communicates gratitude for saving his life. Not one time. And Jesus went to the cross and nails were driven into His hands and into His feet. And He hung there with the weight of the world on His destroyed shoulders. But all that mattered to Barabbas was that he was now free. He didn't care about Jesus. He didn't care that an innocent man took his place that was rightfully his for crimes he committed. It didn't mean anything to him, the sacrifice that Jesus was making. All he cared about was that he was free and he got a lucky break. And in spite of Barabbas' lack of gratitude, Jesus still loved him. Beyond the fact that he was a bad man, beyond the fact he was a criminal deserving of his punishment, beyond the fact that he would probably never acknowledge Jesus and the free gift that he was dying for him to have, Jesus still loved him. Enough to lay down his life. Enough to endure the scourging. Enough to carry a cross on his back that was rightfully another man's. And that same way that Jesus took the punishment for Barabbas is the same way that Jesus took the punishment for us. Because yes, that cross was built for Barabbas, but that cross was also built for you and me. So many times we can, we can read this story and we can judge Barabbas saying, well, he was a criminal, he was bad, he was a rebel. We can give him so many different labels. We can call him this or that. We can be disgusted by him, and rightfully so. He was a bad man. But the fact is this. I am Barabbas, and you are Barabbas. We are Barabbas. And regardless of that fact, that we were deserving of our cross, Jesus stepped in and said, no, 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 no. I will take it. I can't prove this, and this is just a thought of mine. But the way that I've thought about the cross is like this. If Romans walked into this room today with the same exact cross that Jesus hung on, and they placed me on that cross, it would be a perfect fit to me. If they placed you on that cross, it would be a perfect fit to you. Because that was not His cross that day. That was our cross. And He loved us enough to take our cross. So much that He would lay down His life for you and me. And I'm going to be completely transparent with you. There are times that I have questioned it and I have said, God, I've made so many mistakes. 
I've done so many things in my life I'm not proud of. I'm ashamed of my sin. But understand this. It was not nails that held Him to a cross. It was the love of a heavenly Father. How many times have I stood on that platform with Pilate and Jesus and I'm the Barabbas and they start to take my chains off and I say, no, 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 I'm guilty. I deserve this. I deserve the guilt. I deserve the shame. I deserve the consequence. It's mine. I deserve it. And Jesus looks at me and says, no, let me have it. Let me have your sin. He says, let me take your pain. And I say, no, God, I did this to myself. I deserve this. I deserve it all. I say, God, I'm so ashamed. But he says, give me your shame. But God, what if I do it again? I'll still be here. But God, I don't want to hurt you. I love you. I don't want to do this anymore. But he says, everything will be all right. Just let me have your sins. And I give him my sins and I receive his mercy and his grace. And I watch him, an innocent man, as he is led down a road with a cross on his back that was meant for me. I see the nails driven through his hands and feet. I see the insurmountable pain and anguish of my sin and my transgression on my Savior. But in spite of all of that, Jesus looks at me. A broken, hurt, dirty sinner. Deserving of punishment. The same punishment that he's enduring. And he says with love in his eyes, go, you're free. As we all stand across this place today. Jesus said, I paid the price so you didn't have to. He said, I'm, I'm taking your spot so you can be free from the chains that have kept you bound. He says, I'm laying myself down as a sacrifice to atone for you so that you can choose to spend eternity with me. And friends, that is the gospel message of Jesus Christ. That He died on a cross to pay for our sins. He died so that we could live. And it is by His sacrifice that salvation has been extended unto mankind. It is not the will of God that anyone should perish. It's not the will of God that anyone would be lost. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I know this is heavy. I wasn't expecting to get a lot of amens or, or reaction from, from you today. But this is a reality. That 2,000 years ago, an innocent man took on the sin, guilt, and shame of an entire world, every generation from the first until he returns. And he wants to set every person free from the things that are keeping them bound. And He wants to fill you today with His Spirit. He wants to wipe away all the sin and the shame and the guilt that's crushing you. And I'm preaching to somebody today who feels like you've come to the end of your road. Who feels weighted down by the worries and the struggles of this life. Who doesn't know what else to do or where else to go. Because the alcohol is not helping. The temptations that you're battling seem to win 
every time. The relationship you're in is toxic, leaving you feeling used and worthless. But I've come to tell you today, you are not worthless. You don't have to be a slave to temptation or vices. You don't have to be bound to alcohol, drugs, or immorality because there was a man who loved you so much that before you were ever born, he died on a cross specifically for you. It was not an accident. It wasn't just happenstance, but it was intentional. It was on purpose. It was for a reason. It was for you. I love that about Jesus. He's not some distanced, unmoved mover who spoke the world into existence and left us on our own. But He is a personal Savior. He is intentional with us. And He desires a relationship with His creation. Jesus, as His time was quickly coming, told His disciples that when He left, He would not leave them alone, but that He would send them a comforter And that comforter is His Spirit. It's the free gift that I've been talking about. It's the gift that Jesus purchased on the cross at Calvary. And He wants to give that to you today. It is literally His Spirit dwelling inside of you. It will help you in the midst of your trials and your temptations, your pain, your guilt, the brokenness, the hopelessness. He wants to give you peace That does not make sense. Peace that passes all understanding. Comfort that completely surrounds you no matter what situation of life you find yourself in. And the good news is that you can have it. Acts chapter 2 verse 38 says, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. I'm reaching for somebody today if you've never had this experience, but you're interested. If you've never had God come into you and make your heart His home, I want to explain what happens in that process. When He fills you with His Spirit, the initial sign is that you're going to begin to speak a new language that you don't understand. It won't make sense. You've never heard it before. It sounds like gibberish at times, but I promise you it is not gibberish. That is your soul making intercession for you, praying to God about the things you know not of. It won't make any sense, but God will understand every single word. And so if that's you today, if you want to be filled with His Spirit, I want to invite you at this time to come to this altar this morning. But... If you're already filled with His Spirit, I also want to invite you. I think today could be a great day of rededication. A day of remembrance for the sacrifice that He made. And I think it would be okay even just for a few moments if we began to come to this altar and give Him thanks for what He did for us 2,000 years ago. For the place that He took that He didn't have to. If we would just come and acknowledge the freedom of the cross the freedom from sin and shame and guilt the freedom from the things that have tried to keep us bound 